Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Save themselves for their own incompetence. But, yeah, I think it's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It's a brilliant story. Someone trips over the kill. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Brilliant coffee cup goes over the computer. <laughs> Human race is saved. <laughs> Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Xiao Kizal. And I'm Rob Kernahan. In this week, we're going to be talking about where we're up to on the AI hype cycle, what the world might look like on the other side, and how to properly mobilize and scale AI in the enterprise. Joining us this week for that conversation is Chris Wells, VP of R&D at Indico Data Solutions, and a fellow podcast host of Unstructured Unlocked podcast, which I think is available wherever you get your pods. Welcome, Chris. Great to see you. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. And I apologize for everything that's about to come. I appreciate you <laughs> tolerating me. So my day job is, you know, I'm vice president of research and development at Indico, as you mentioned, which these days means my real title is chief prompt engineer. Uh, <laughs> spend a lot. All of ours will be eventually. Yeah, that's right. That's right. My main focus at that company, uh, I'm not an algorithms nerd. I used to be. I'm a recovering algorithms nerd. My main focus is figuring out how to make AI enterprise ready and getting it into the hands of business users, not uh, machine learning engineers, just making it usable. In the past, I was a data science lead in the financial services space, various roles for about 10 years and ancient history. At this point, I was an academic PhD in theoretical physics, and I taught undergrads for a while until I was sufficiently bored and broke. Cool. So so maybe let's kick off by uh, talking about Indico itself. So where are you guys based? How long have you been running for now? And, and effectively, what are you are trying to do, Chris? Yeah, company's based out of Boston, was founded by, it's sort of a, it's a trope, but founded by a few folks who dropped out of college and right. were plucky and had a dream. To Living the dream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they, it was Olin College of Engineering, just, just outside of Boston. This was back in 2013. Started out as an API company. So had some, you know, models and various sort of old school AI behind the APIs. And we're trying to market to developers to build API into solutions. Randomly had an interaction with an enterprise company that said, we'll pay you basically 10x the fees that they were, they were, you know, that they were charging developers, and they were like, "Oh, maybe this is the way to go." Yeah. Sort of pivoted. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I, I see the strategy there. Yeah, it's a, it, that's clear. Very good. It's very, it, it's very typical startup strategy: just bumble yeah. around in a random <laughs> drunken yeah. walk until yeah. you find a thing. <laughs> I was actually customer three of Indico. I okay. was a customer before I joined. Um, fell in love with the team and the vision. Never met a group of nerds who were as brilliant as they were humble. Very rare in my experience right. to find that combination. So I, I fell in love with that. One of the co-founders uh, is Alec Radford, um, mm. who folks mm. know from OpenAI and you know lead author in the original GPT paper. So he, right, right. more of an academic bent, he left Indicote for OpenAI. And, and, um, when was that, Chris? That would have been 
gosh, when was, when was GPT first released? I want to say 2016, 2017. Right. There. So, right. so the company has been around about a decade, been focused on the enterprise for the last six or seven years. Um, and really starting to see a lot of interesting traction, especially in insurance, which blows my mind. Um, not known for their innovation. I probably shouldn't say that. I'm going to get in trouble with our marketing, but I think it's true. And I've been surprised by it. Well, very heavily robust, I guess. And uh, I mean, we, might, yeah. we might, might come back to that in a second. So what is it that you're trying to do with AI in the enterprise at, sort of at this stage in its cycle? A lot of people talk about our platform as a machine learning platform. And I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's a machine teaching platform. Um, so we try to, we try to abstract away the implementation details of what transformer am I using? What are the hyperparameters? Data scientists hate us for right. this reason because they, you know, there are no knobs to turn anymore, right, at right. least a reduced set of knobs. But we make it so that the business user can get in, supervise a model, you know, like literally uh, on a document labeled data. And then the model says, Oh, I see. I got you. So does this fix for the, the age old problem? That if your data is not good, you're going to get garbage information back. Does it, and a lot of organizations get partway through that journey and generally end up giving up. And they've been doing that since the days of master data management. Is that the problem it's fixing for? I would say no. It, we, you know, at the end of the day, Damn, the I someone had finally got it. It sounded like a good question, Dave, but completely yeah. off track. No, no. It's, <laughs> it's a good question, but I'm, <laughs> I'm reminded of an anecdote about Charles Babbage where someone asked him if his first mechanical computer would give the right answer if you asked the wrong question. At the end of the day, we allow you to supervise hmm. the model, but you're still building model. And if you do a terrible job supervising it, you're going to get a terrible model. And What's interesting is we see a lot of times people discovering how terrible their own processes are right. because they're trying to memorialize <laughs> that process in the weights and biases of a model. And they, uh, one of the first projects I did when I was at my last company implementing Indico, we show model metrics. So you can tell, like, is the model learning my stuff? What's mm -hmm. it going to do when it gets to production? We try to make the black box less black, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the subject matter experts who had been labeling the data were like, well, the model's crap. This isn't going to work. We're throwing the whole thing out. And we pulled up their labeling. And it was like, you don't have a single process. The process <laughs> depends on who's doing it. So, right, like, right. you get on the same page and then come back to us when you know what it is you're doing. It's the old classic. The digital transformation failed. Let's blame the technology and not any of the other things we right. failed to do, like people and That's culture right. and standardization yeah. and all the good things that we actually think, you, you know, know deep down you should, but we'll just blame the tech because it's easier. Yeah, exactly. So a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks come to us and they're like, we just want to reduce headcount. You know, we want to... Hmm increase our throughput and what they end up finding is a lot of knock-on benefits like your process gets streamlined your data is much cleaner than it's ever been so analytics are now possible because you know what's going in and then three and i can't emphasize this enough just job satisfaction like people don't like doing data entry jobs for the most part and if you can get the easy stuff done for them and they actually get to use their gray matter more often during the day they're much happier with where they are in their position so the the ai tool set that you guys are creating is like a productivity aid yeah it's not a robot it's a mech suit which i think is right. much cooler right. anyway I like that. yeah that's yeah, very yeah, cool yeah yeah, yeah. Well, well let's let's just uh, take a step back for a second and talk sure. about the models and obviously the dinner party conversation of the day is the generative models yeah. 
Like, where are you on that? Because obviously there is some prevailing wisdom in the world at the moment that says it's maybe going too fast and Pandora's box is open. Um, yeah. And, you know, are we going to get it back? Like, what, you know, what are the next 10 years perhaps look like? And then there are maybe other commentators at the moment saying, once you get past the basics of asking it for cheese jokes, which is Rob's <laughs> favorite usage of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It actually doesn't do very much. So where do you guys stand on generative at the moment? And, and what else is there out on the market? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a lot. And also, I'll tell you, 10 years in this space is an infinite amount of time. So right. I'll, Even the last six months. Yeah, it's been the Cambrian explosion for yeah. AI, right? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll try. I'll take a shot at those things. Uh, <laughs> where do we stand? Our company history has been, as soon as GPT came out, a month later, it's in our platform, right? As soon as, you know, Roberta came out, a month later, it's in our platform. We took longer with GPT because it's a very different type of model. And um, our history has been, like I mentioned, indiscriminate of models where you tell them, these are the things you can tell me and do not stray from them. And they won't. They can't. Generative models, of course, you ask it for a cheese joke and it, it can give you a mouse joke because uh, there's some correlation between yeah. those two concepts and its yeah. training data. So where we stand is that there is some very low hanging fruit that these generative models can pick from the tree. For example, they are incredible. Zero shot, right? You don't show it any examples and it can find things. In fact, so I told you about, you know, we give you an interface where you can label the data and the model can then learn from it. By just telling these models the name of the data element you want, it can find them. Assuming it's a human understandable name, it's not the name of some dumb column in your database, right? right? So our first approach has been like, let's treat these as discriminative models. Let's build the guardrails so hallucinations never get back into your database. They never come through your downstream workflow. So we solve for that. Labeling data you know, for a complicated workflow used to take about a week for a team of people. We think we can get that down to an afternoon now. Um, and wow. so you're ready to go to production in days rather than weeks. Oh, uh, cool. Assuming... Your corporate IT can get its stuff together, which is a whole other... I'm not, not going to spend any time there. I There's a whole maybe. season yeah. of podcasts on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it seems to me the human ability to implement AI might be the thing that ultimately saves us from not being taken over by the ro robot overlords. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's reality. Yeah. <laughs> I love the concept. Humans save themselves through their own incompetence. I think it's brilliant. It's a brilliant story. <laughs> Someone trips over the kill switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brilliant coffee cup goes over the computer. Human race is saved. <laughs> no, I, I think there's some I think there's some truth to that. So I, I our our entire enterprise, our arc has been whatever the best in AI is, whatever the best in natural language processing is make it enterprise ready because it's probably not like a few years ago, any random, you know, SME at uh, whatever insurance company XYZ could have downloaded the weights and biases of Roberta and built a harness around it and put stuff through it. And, but you're going to do a bad job. Um, and so we take our expertise and we make these things enterprise ready. And that's what we're doing with GPT. We're starting the next arc we're on, and this one's really exciting and also a little terrifying, is actually taking advantage of its generative capabilities. Mm -hmm. Document summarization, generating, you know, here are five clauses that I like. Can you generate one with these, you know, characteristics that I can put into this contract? So we started out with heavy guardrails the last six months. That's what mm -hmm. we've been working on. And now we're working on peeling them back. Um, and, and when you look at the hype cycle for generative AI at the moment. Yeah. 
it's probably true to say we're at least I hope we're near the top of that at the moment. If not, we we must be very close to it. To you, what is the what does the arc look like for someone who spends every day in this world? Yeah. When are we going to hit the other side of it? And have you got a, a sort of a view of what the other side of the hype curve is going to look like? Yeah. I talked about the good side and the interesting things that we're doing. Let me tell you, I'll answer that question after I tell you what the other side of it is. These models are still pretty dumb. I have a suite of tests I run every time OpenAI releases a new version of, you know, 4 or 3.5. And one of those tests is just asking it to solve like a sophomore level college math problem, like solve this ordinary differential equation. And it very convincingly fails. Uh, right. It just, it, the, the answer is so plausible. It looks like it could have come out of the notes of some professor <laughs> see, and probably did because they were on the web and they got scraped, mm-hmm. but very wrong. Um, right, right, and, right, right. And you can poke it and prod it to get there. It'll eventually get there, but um, it's worse. I used to teach undergrads and it's much worse. It's fantastic. I think when you ask it to make a joke about something and it tries to make up its own joke and it pulls data that it thinks are connected and it puts it into a joke construct. So it reads exactly like a joke, but actually makes no sense. Like, so one the other day, which is like, why did the man put his keys in the blender? Because he wanted to make time fly. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It's funny in a way, though, isn't it? In yeah, the ridiculousness yeah, of it. It's very surrealist. It humor, is very yeah, surreal. Which resonates with me. Yeah. I didn't I think the one I I loved the other day was that lawyer who submitted case presidents to the courts and the judge went and checked and none of the cases existed yes. and chat GPT yeah. had made it all up. But it looked really convincing yeah. and it had merged a load of things together and just said, this is true. The lawyer just believed it, submitted it and got into some pretty deep water for basically making stuff up. Yeah, <laughs> that, br- that brings me back to the hype cycle. I, yeah. I do think we're near the top, although, you know, I've been wrong before. I think what's going to happen is... There's all this excitement. Everyone's trying a lot of experiments. People are not being very disciplined, right? At the end of the day, it's a machine learning model. And there are things you're supposed to do with machine learning models before you set them loose in production. And people are forgetting that because they're so excited. I think we're gonna that's gonna get tamped down. The applications in the enterprise of these tools are gonna diverge. I think there are going to be like personal productivity applications, like you're on your desktop. You use ChatGPT or some framework around ChatGPT to solve your day-to-day tasks. And then there'll be a few use cases that are broadly adopted within enterprise companies, hopefully enterprise companies that have bought licenses to Indigo, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that done, stand Chris. the test. Nicely no, done. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not part of the sales org, but I aspire to be. Mate, so. I think you're natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Anyways, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. I think there are a few use cases that are going to stand the test of time. And there's we're going to be in a bit of a valley of, you know, sort of discontent for the next six months or so while we're sorting out what those are. And a lot of companies are going to try to do it themselves. And I think they're going to they're going to burn a lot of rubber and not get very far. If, if you had to pick one sector that should be excited about the future of AI versus one sector that might be excited that shouldn't be, which which two would you pick? The one that's going to get the most out of it and the one that might might not get what it thinks it like might get out of blow it. blow a lot of cash on, on MVPs and actually not get value out of them. Yeah, I... Oof, that is a fantastic question. I Obviously... Every vertical that's paper heavy is is excited about yeah. this, right? Anything you're, where you're processing tons of documents or even call transcripts. I think it comes down to how heavily regulated you are. So I, I used to work in financial services. I was a quant 
back in the day. And you build a model, it gets deployed, it makes investment decisions, right? And then every six months, the audit team is like, okay, why does it do what it does? Uh, <laughs> you, you put numbers in and they come out, right? It's so <laughs> and, and they go up. As long as they go up, yeah, you make your money, you you're up, happy. Yeah. And they're like, no, we have to understand. We have to file reports or whatever. So the regulation is going to be the bar. And I think just above the bar is probably insurance and financial services. They're going to they're gonna get really excited. There are a lot of good use cases. They're already really good because of those years of being sort of governed and audited. They're really good at figuring out what the right frameworks are for talking to their auditors. And very rule-based anyway as a, as a system of work. Yeah, exactly. So what would be your advice for companies that really want to start with generative model on an enterprise scale? What is the first step that they should take? I, this is going to be controversial. I'm a researcher at heart, right? And research ends at certainty, right? That's where you start engineering and it begins at uncertainty. I think companies, the ones that are going to be successful are telling their employees, use ChatGPT for everything. Now, they should be using the safest possible version of it. You know, Azure OpenAI is a better choice than straight up OpenAI because of data privacy and data security guarantees that you get from Microsoft. There are also some nice, I'll throw in a shout out to one of my favorite other small companies, Private AI. Um, there are ways to put a pane of glass between you and OpenAI to strip out things like PII, anything that might be material, non-public information, for example. So do it as safely as possible, but get people using this thing. Because like I said, we have to, only a few use cases are going to survive, both on the personal productivity side and the enterprise scale side. And the faster you figure those out and start to start to scale them, the better. Um, Just before we delve a bit further into the enterprise, because I really want to follow that theme a little bit more deeply, I, I, do, I want to return to the end of the hype cycle. So yeah. what does the landscape look like to you? Is that landscape, we're heading towards a singularity moment of AGI, or is it, is it, is it more mundane? I think it's much more mundane. And I, I'm sorry to be boring. If this impacts your downloads, feel free to deep fake me saying something <laughs> yeah, more spicy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the robots are coming, panic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's funny. The best definition I've ever seen of AGI actually came from ChatGPT. Funny that. Yeah, right. I was I was up at three in the morning and I, I just couldn't sleep. So I was talking to my robot friend and uh, I asked it, like, are you an artificial general intelligence? And they're like, no, here are their criteria. I check these four. Not, right, the, not right. the last three. And I was like, right. oh, that's closer than I thought. Yeah, he's, um, are you sure, Chris, he wasn't trying to trick you? Yeah. I mean, he might be. He might be messing with your head a little bit, especially at three o'clock in the morning. I probably deserve it too. <laughs> the first thing an AI should do before it takes over the world is make everybody think it's stupid. And then before it pounces, you know, that's right. we'll get the yeah, Terminator maybe. vision. Yeah. Is it failing my ordinary differential equations test on purpose? Uh, yeah. You're never, you're never uh, going to know the answer to that question. That guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I, I, I don't know exactly what intelligence is. And right, that might right. just be a lack of creativity on my part, or that's really the state of humans. Like, mm. I have three kids. When did they become intelligent? I don't know. It, I, and I think it was sort of a very smooth thing. Like the singularity, actual singularity, I'm a physicist by training, actual singularities in the nature, you get to them very smoothly. It's, you know, you don't really know when you've hit it because it just sort of comes and you're there. Um, but I, I think we're headed towards something much more mundane, which is back to my mech suit analogy. The mech suit's getting better and better. And some people are going to 
put it on and shoot themselves in the foot. There are some industries which are going to do a bad job. So insurance and banking, I think, are going to thrive in this space, especially if they... And we're not the only platform, but especially if they they take advantage of platforms that already have guardrails in place, so you can't shoot yourself in the foot. There are other industries that are going to really want to take advantage of this, and it's just not going to work. And and again, marketing and sales will probably be upset with me, but I think it's going to be really hard for medical applications, pharma, um, pharma maybe, but just like medical claims, medical insurance. Until these giant models can be behind the firewall, Hmm. And some people will tell you they can be today, but like the performance isn't there. Right. I don't, I don't see that happening. I think we're a ways from that. So what's going on in that? Because you would think that say something like general practice medicine, which is quite a, a reference material based way of medicine. I don't mean that disrespectfully to any general practitioners out there, you know, they're, they're a lifeblood for us. But um, I'd always thought that actually generative AI in that space, in terms of churning through all of that data could be very helpful. What concerns you about it? And what is it the corruptibility of the data and the un- untrustworthy nature of the data or something else? People worry me more than technology, right? Mm. So back to the, the silly lawyer that didn't do some fact checking, it, would, it, was a, it was like a one Google search would have solved this. So yeah. like, I can see a world where the physician has on their tablet, if they're using a tablet, it's probably pen and paper still, but if they're using a tablet, here are the symptoms what's the diagnosis and then not asking a follow-up question to verify it. That's going to happen. I'm quite certain. So you think it'll be a a couple of those instances and then all of a sudden we'll sort of withdraw from using it type of thing. Yeah. It's, it really comes down to, it's like self-driving cars, right? The, the risk is massive. So everyone wants to talk about accuracy, right? So in my world, people will ask, okay, how many of my 500 page documents with 300 data elements are going to be straight through processed? And my answer is, Zero, statistically, right, right. because they'd all have to, the accuracy on each data element would have to be like seven nines right. for you to get right. five nines on the entire document. It's just combinatorially impossible. Huh. And that's for like that's for like invoices, right? right? Now we're talking about a world where it's diagnosing cancer or you know pediatric lymphoma or something. Um, you just cannot get it wrong. And so I think. Having an AI helper is a great idea. And studies have been done where radiology is better if you have suggestions from computer vision system that are then double checked. Hmm. But people are going to, again, people are forgetting that they're just models. Treat them like models, maintain the rigor, build the right human computer interface. And I'm not talking like plug it in the back of your head. Build the right human (laughs) computer interface to make that double checking easy. But people are going to forget that initially. And I think, I think medicine is going to be lagging behind because of things like that. So it sounds like what you envision is a world where we have sort of productivity assistance and then maybe some quite well understood use cases in, in very specific ways rather than yeah. some sort of like sprawling general use of AI engines. Oh, it's going to sprawl. People are going to do silly things. Like I saw an article this morning that Mercedes announced, we put chat GPT in our, in our console. And I'm like, I want less crap in my car. I want fewer <laughs> buttons, fewer lights, like just make it more fuel efficient and, you know, spend money on not having to spend a thousand dollars every time I go to the shop. You know? Yeah, I read that as well. And the, the first thing I thought was for what? Well, I know, I know you got it. Hey, Mercedes, you, you're in a traffic jam. Hey, Mercedes, tell me a cheese joke. It's yeah. there. You've got it. It's brilliant. <laughs> for you, it's a great I'm buying product. it. I'm yeah, buying yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. We'll take my money. Take my money. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I, I think we're going to see sprawl. I think there's, you know, we're going to see the aftershocks of the current peak in the hype cycle and then it'll settle down. Um, it was, it was the same way with, you know, when Apple came out with the iPod, there were a bunch of follow on, you know, there were 90,000 different personal MP3 players. And then now yeah. everyone just has Spotify on their phone. Right. And exactly. so yeah. I think we're going to get there. I think there'll be a lot of silliness and some danger in the interim. A topic maybe for later in the conversation. I think the internet's going to become like unusable for a while. Yeah. But. yeah, that's right. Well, you mean it'll just become untrustworthy at such a level you can only go to certain places you absolutely can verify, or it's just yeah. what's the? Is it just can't trust anything anymore? And not that you can trust a lot on the internet. Let's be honest. Yeah, but right. it gets worse. You ever read Neil Stevenson? Oh, we love Neil, Crash. love Neil Stevenson. Yep. Yeah, he wrote he wrote this book that I hate called Anathem. Uh, I got about 300 pages into that and I, yeah, I just it, I couldn't go any further. It was hard work. It never gets better. But there's this <laughs> cool concept, which I thought was stupid at the time because I was reading this in 2011, where the internet was just, whatever their internet is, was in this world was just unusable. And you had to have a, effectively a Sherpa who could go into the internet and make sense of what was right and oh, wrong. Amazing. I mean, I might start a company after I close my laptop on this call where I, you know, internet tour guides, sure, but, but yeah. yeah. Every business model that's mentioned on Cloud Realities is now owned by Cloud Realities. <laughs> Cloud Realities, yeah, yeah, sorry. That's our IP, you can't have it. it. But you yeah. get that, that person on the WhatsApp group who... Yeah. tends to ask the WhatsApp group the why didn't you just Google that question question, which is just yeah. Google it. It'll tell you yeah. the answer. What's that then? Well, just Google it and find out for yourself. A joy, a right. voyage of discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I I think the internet is going to be flooded with nonsense more, more than it has been historically. And I think eventually the problem with like stable diffusion, putting too many fingers and like stuff melding into your skin, that'll get solved. Um, and I don't know what humanity does then. I'm hopeful that what happens is people realize you never should have just taken for granted what the internet says. And yeah. we go back to like actually asking the question, is this right or wrong? And but, using our own, being thoughtful instead of being information led. We had a, a great yeah. guest on before who was drawing that distinction and saying that actually some of the higher end schools in the US in particular are now taking computers out of the classroom. And, and they focus on teaching sort of critical thought and see that as being like a like a future advantage where actually probably most of the people who were brought up on this, or, you know, in our conversation today, most of us were brought up with kind of being taught to leverage computers. Yeah. Well, it comes back from when you're educated before the internet, you got a textbook and you were told to believe what's mm. in the textbook, even though... Yeah. You could get some textbooks that didn't get tectonic plates right. In, you know, and that's in recent memory that went, oh, that's a terrible theory. That can't be true. And then it turns out to be true. But, but we were always taught to believe what we read. And when you read it, it's more believable. And then we're into the age of the algorithm is corrupting and people are posting fake news and everything else. And I think we're hardwired to want to believe what we read. But now you have to be cautious. And I think the education system personally has to catch up with the reality of information can't be treated as truth all the time. So here's here's another hot take. I think a lot of people become teachers because they're not actually particularly good at anything, any one subject. And I think we should drop almost all like factual education from schools hmm. and focus on, like you said, critical thinking. How do you build a worldview? Like yeah. what's a worldview? Not, not any particular worldview, right? Hmm. But how do you build one? And what, what does a consistent one look like? And then economics. So So right. people stop like, saying dumb things about the current state of the economy so you're more into sort of 
classical education and ideas around things like philosophy and ways to approach the world. Yeah, learn how to learn, right? Yeah. That's, that's yeah, the, right. I, I hated school. I went to school for like, what, I don't know, 25, 27 years to get a PhD finally, right? I hated school until my third year of grad school where it was like, go figure out this thing no one's ever figured out, right? right. And then it was like, right. oh, this is how it should have been all along. And it could be, but it's harder to lead a classroom. And I've taken us way off course. I apologize. No, it's, 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 it's very important about, because there'll have to be at some point in the future, a social reset about how society looks at technology. Exactly. And we haven't done that yet. And we're getting more and more technology pushed at us. And it's it, we can't cope. A lot of people just can't cope with it. So there'll have to be a reset point at some some yep. juncture that might be a compelling event or it might just be a conversation that we start to have. But it, oh, it's, it, it's, it has to be there at some point. It has in the to future. be there. It's coming really quickly. I, uh, I'm on a community softball team and there it's a broad scattering of humanity that is on this team. And one of the folks on the team is a college junior getting ready to finish his education history education degree. And he was complaining about chat GPT and the fact that every question that he was putting together in lesson plans was easily solved by chat GPT. And I'm like, don't, don't complain about that. That's an opportunity. You can now ask more interesting questions that chat GPT can't just solve and let the students use chat GPT to like solve the little components of that larger problem. It's the introduction of the calculator. Isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I look, my high school calculus teacher was a hard ass and we weren't allowed to use calculators at all. Right. And I was much better in college at math. And, yeah. you know, and then like once you understand what's actually going on, then use the calculator. So once you've written an essay and you understand the structure of an essay, let Chef GPT do the outline. Like I tell my kids, I hope their teachers aren't listening. They're almost surely not. Use Chef GPT for everything. And I'm talking to my second grader about this because this is not going away and the people that get really good at it are going to thrive do you remember when google first came out and there were certain people that just couldn't google effectively do you remember this this was a thing and the people that got good at googling got good at finding information faster than others this is just that on steroids and meth and whatever other stimulants well let's return back to the enterprise briefly because i want to return to sort of solving scaled problems and stable problems. Mm. And we touched on it a little bit earlier, but an enterprise going in, building on Schalke's question, like what what should they do? I guess what I want to bring into that mix is what should enterprises be cautious about going in? And what kind of safety mechanisms should they be wrapping around the adoption of AI, particularly when we're in like top of the hype, hype cycle frenzy period? Yeah, a couple things. So Back to the point I've probably made too many times already, but it is just a language model at the end of the day. It's a probability engine. It knows what the most likely next word after, you know, knock, knock, who's there, right? It, it understands the probability of what words follow that. Just a model. It's a mathematical entity. Treat it like one. So that means really highly critical information that you would have a four eye check on, right? Like someone looks at it and then another person looks at it. Keep doing that. Maybe two eyes are GPT or Llama or Bard, whatever. The other two eyes should still be human. If it's business critical, highly risky, whatever else, don't forget your roots when it comes to rigor, uh, mathematical and also governance and compliance. Don't forget those things. Two, use it for what it's good at, right? So it can be used in a discriminative way. Do that. Um, it's a really helpful research aid. So there are a lot of really interesting 
startups, Indico included. There's a reference architecture from Microsoft, uh, Azure OpenAI for using this as your own sort of internal search engine, right? Like if you have research heavy tasks based on a corpus of documents you have access to, for example, in the legal domain, put it to work in, in that context, right? It's a really, it's a great boost to human creativity. Give your knowledge workers the mech suit, let them put it on and help, let them go faster and farther. Don't just let it into the wild, send it to production without those things. And you'll be, you'll end up very happy. You might make some missteps because we're all trying to figure this out together. You might put a prototype in production. If it turns out it's not a productivity helper, it, you know, introduces too much risk. You can't get it past compliance, but that's okay. It's okay to take some missteps because we're going to figure out together what the things are that scale and that are safe and the right way to do them. Shalk, what have you been looking at this week? So each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech. And this week I want to focus on managing the data for the AI lifecycle. So for the past decade, and especially after the release of ChatGPT in November last year, the conversation around AI has focused on how this new technology can solve all sorts of business problems. And while that's true, that conversation misses a critical component for AI success which is high-quality data. If you invest in AI technology without also investing in high-quality data, you will basically get garbage in, garbage out. So it's time to shift the conversation from which business problems AI can solve to how to make your AI technology the best it can be. And that conversation starts with understanding the AI data lifecycle. And there are four main components in this lifecycle. First one is data sourcing. Finding the right data from the right source. Next one, data preparation, which is also critical for success, including data annotation, quality assurance, etc. Third one, model training and deployment, going from pilot to production. And 85 of AI projects fail to make it in production because of data. And the last one, module evaluation by humans. You must continuously evaluate and update your model and ensure that the results are accurate and there is no bias. So a question to you, Chris. Do you think that this life cycle is complete or are there any additional or maybe completely different steps to take? No, I, I think you have the right life cycle. I, I would emphasize, I see this over and over again, folks train a model, they get it to production, they're happy with it, and then they forget about it, right? Because mm -hmm. they're they, they were raised in the, you know, deterministic programming and robotic process automation world, right? And it's like, well, they let the bots loose and the bots do the bot things. But these bots are probabilistic and they're fed by data. And so I, I want to double click on the model grooming, the, you know, feeding and watering of your models in production and, and completing that loop back to the pre-production um, data pipeline so you can get continuous improvement or at, at the very least, just static performance of your models in production. All of this gets really tricky uh, with these large language models uh, that you don't have control, generally speaking, over what data they're fed, but that, that might be a bit of a tangent, so I'll leave that on the table for a second. And so when you think about that, the culture change that comes with this type of new way of working, so you, you, you ingrained in, I wrote a bit of logic 
uh, it puts parameters in that are defined. It puts parameters out that are defined. And now you get into this: things can change on the way, situations change. We need to constantly. It's like the 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 view of the person constantly pulling the lever and twisting the knobs on the machine to make it, you know, highly optimal. You know, the view of the computing in the sixties on the TV show site. They actually might become a reality that you have to keep it as an attended thing that you feed and water and take care of because there's always been this enterprise culture that you know you implement the massive program and then you go ace that's right and you walk off and you forget about it for six months and then you wonder what what happened yeah. why do i smell smoke <laughs> yeah. is something on fire behind us yeah, yeah. it's that type of thing but i i think that it goes back to with this technology there is a massive cultural shift in thinking ways of working understanding approach strategies gaining a different style of mastery over it. it'd be interesting your view think about when you work with customers and you go in are they aware of the need to change their culture with the new technology or do you think they think they're still treating it like the 20 year ago erp implementation that didn't quite do what it would but everybody called it success anyway because that was the right thing to do the the good ones have an inkling and i generally they have an inkling because they've tried this before and it's blown up yeah. in their faces some of my favorite clients of indicos are folks that have tried a dozen other platforms and haven't been happy because they get it like when they see our stuff working, they know that it's working. On the other side of the spectrum, I've had so many conversations when folks will ask this very vague question of how accurate will this be? It's like, I don't know. How accurate is your labeling going to be? Like, can you actually teach this platform what it's supposed to do? And then I'll ask them the counter question, which is how accurate are your humans today? And it's crickets. Hmm. Like, hmm. Because there's, they want to replace a human with something subhuman, right? And they don't even know how well the job is going today because they don't have those processes. They don't have, they, they're not even attending to what the humans are doing in a lot of cases. And that's terrifying to me. And the thought of selling them something that can just make that badness happen faster is scary. Right. Well, that's the thing about humans. If you don't tell them anything different, they'll do the job they know how to do. And they're good at little adaptations on the way through to go just through experience. They've trained themselves. Yeah. Whereas computers, unless you tell them about it in the model, then they can't cope with those little micro variances on the process that they just know a human will deal with naturally. Yeah. And it seems to me, to go back to Shalk's question, that you know the expectations of people going in, particularly some business decision makers are that, you know, this is all there already. Like, you know, they've consumed chat GPT and as a result, well, we could just go consume that thing because it's already there. And, you know, I think we need to be setting the record straight that actually the other side prep of getting the model to that point for a proper scaled business application is, has got hard yards attached to it. That's about right. Right. Yeah. ChatGPT is not going to solve your data quality issues, right? No. People think they that it will. Yeah. It's well, it's interesting. It can be used to find them. And it can so one of our biggest challenges, and everyone has this challenge, is you know, people will send scans of notes scrawled on napkins through our platform, right? Like terrible documents in very poor shape and the OCR struggles. I've seen a lot of instances where ChatGPT will actually pre-correct the OCR and then pull the answer out of the document and correct. And so like we can't do anything with that because we just it's the words on the page. That's the answer, right? We have to keep it grounded in the actual text. So I think there are some unsexy things that are going to be applications of these large language models. And I think one of them is just data quality pipelines. Um, 
behind the scenes. But the way you talk about that, it, it is a very powerful thing because it the, the way you said it becomes a, a support to the function, yeah. you're, you're reducing toil and fundamentally increasing productivity. And one of the problems that organizations and countries face is how do you get productivity up? So maybe this is the next wave of how we boost it to, to drive the next sort of industrial phase. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tool that actually will be of great benefit, but it will be the boring stuff that it's of great benefit with as opposed Absolutely. to something revolutionary and magical that we all sort of told in the press. Yep. I've, I've spent a lot of time in the data science world, right? And the trope is that 85% of the time in a data project is data cleaning and, and scrubbing, yeah. right? Yeah. I haven't written on my own a data scrubbing or cleaning Python method uh, in the last six months, right? Because you can just say, hey, here's my data structure. Here's what I want to come out. Here are three examples of the rows in this data structure. Can you manipulate this in the way I want? And it gets you 90% of there, the way yeah. there, you fix the error and then you're good to go, right? Massive productivity boost. Well, thanks for joining us today, Chris. That was a, a very insightful conversation. I think looking at some of the practicalities of what AI means today and, you know, dispelling some of my fears at least. And it's okay. given Rob an opportunity to try and get himself back in with the machines, which never failed to take those Excellent. off, do you? Yeah. I'm still hopeful for my machine-based phony baloney job in the future. That, yeah. is my, um, yeah. that is my hope. Yeah. Have you put out any prompt engineer applications? <laughs> <laughs> Only for the cheese joke community. Uh, <laughs> very good. So look, we end every episode of the show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. And that can be anything from great restaurant at the weekend all the way through to something exciting you're doing in your business life. So Chris, what are you excited about doing next? I already talked about the business stuff and uh you know my days now are just me and chat gpt so i i'm gonna i'm gonna leave that alone uh is it you and you and chat gpt lying to you and trying to seduce, <laughs> seduce you into a place where you think I, they're not taking over i thought it was my friend i'm so disappointed <laughs> Sorry about and that. i don't have a lot of friends for obvious reason yeah i just lost another one no i uh so um this weekend in the u.s you know Monday's a federal holiday. It's Juneteenth celebrating the sort of unofficial uh, end of slavery in Galveston, oh, Texas nice. in the yeah. 1860s. And tomorrow I am playing keyboards in a, in a gospel band um, with a full choir. And, uh, oh, wow. Everything cool. from like, you know, spirituals, swing low, sweet chariot to uh, earth, wind and fire. Keep your head to the sky. I, I am just I'm jazzed about it. And wow. it's been a long time since I've and this is not a humble brag by any means. This is just just where I am in my life. I haven't played in an ensemble where I, where I was like, am I the worst one here <laughs> in a long time? So it, it's, it's been great. Like the, the team that I'm working with has just elevated me uh, to a level by here's the bar. You got to jump a little higher. So it's, it's been great. I'm wow, super cool. pumped about it. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. We wish you a huge amount of luck with that. I'm sure it's going to go uh, really, really well. Thanks. And I'm not using GPT to do any of it. I just my 10 fingers. <laughs> So a huge thanks to our guest this week, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the show. To our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter. Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automated.